whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Welcome to Season 3 of Five Questions, the podcast where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. In each episode, I ask a philosopher five questions about themselves. There are two ground rules. One is that follow-ups are allowed. The other is that the question I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. So could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are, and what kind of philosophical work you do? Hi, thanks very much for inviting me to be on the podcast. Um, I'm Ryan Preston Roeder. Um, I am a philosophy professor uh, at Occidental College, and I'm interested in questions in moral and political philosophy, philosophy of religion, moral psychology, and more recently in African-American philosophy and theology. Well, it's great to have you here, Ryan. The inspiration for the podcast, as you know, is Iris Murdoch, and she begins each broadcast telling us that philosophy is not self-expression. But she also wrote, to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament, and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. So does your temperament influence your philosophy? And if so, how? Yes. So there's, I think there's a lot of things that, uh, a lot of things that I could say, depending on how we understand temperament. But I'll, I'll mention a couple of things that seem uh, seem important, and 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 they seem important and seem related, although I'm not entirely sure how to spell out the relation between them. One thing is I grew up religious, and although I I no longer have a lot of the religious beliefs that I had growing up, um, I, mean, I think certainly my my older religious temperament or religious outlook has shaped has had a really important influence on on the questions that I ask and how I do philosophy. I think a lot of my work is focused on ideas and phenomena that have received a lot of attention and have been well developed in religious thought. Um, things like faith, especially like forms of faith and redemptive love. But I'm I'm looking at those things and kind of spelling out their their human significance, not really attending to their otherworldly significance. In other words, I'm trying to spell out the significance of these things um, in a secular context. And, and and I think that I think that my interest in in these issues and questions of faith, redemptive love, things like faith in ourselves, faith in other people, things like that. I think that's partly my my interest in these things, my appreciation of, of their value. I think my confidence that uh, that they have some significance for our lives to be spelled out that that can be spelled out it is a kind of remnant of of that older uh, religious outlook. A, a second factor that I think is is related to that, but but slightly different. In all of all or almost all of my work, themes of on the one hand kind of alienation and estrangement, and on the other hand reconciliation. Keep coming back. <laughs> I, keep re- I find that I keep returning to this again and again. So, kind of features of human life that estrange us from ourselves and from one another and from the world around us, and attitudes that we might adopt that help us achieve a kind of reconciliation. And I think that that 
interest I keep returning to is definitely a manifestation of some kind of need or interesting connection that I have. And you could see it as a part of this kind of broader religious temperament, but it also, in some ways, I think, extends beyond it. That's really interesting. I have several things I would like to ask you about that. So one is, when you talk about the experience of alienation, estrangement, and reconciliation, and connect that with your temperament, are you thinking primarily of your relationship with yourself, your sort of internal psychological, emotional dynamics, or about a kind of temperamental preoccupation with relations with other people around you? I, I explore both of those things, and both of those are both of those are of interest uh, interest to me. I mean, in you know some of my work on the, the value of, of various forms of, of, of secular types of faith, I mean, I talk about the ways in which faith in kind of faith in ourselves can shore up our connection to our own projects, our own values. You talk about the ways in which faith in other people can connect us in valuable ways and valuable ways to other people. And in, in some of the, the newer work that I'm exploring, that's some explorations of, of James Baldwin's work, I'm very interested in the importance of and barriers to telling the truth about ourselves and our sense of, of, of shame and fear of facing the truth about ourselves uh, can be a factor that that, that leaves us estranged or alienated from ourselves. And so, so I'm, I'm, I'm both interested in connection to the self and, and, and connection to others. I mean, I do think this maybe does connect also with the, the religious dimension. I mean, one thing about the work you described and some of the, the work you've done that I really love is that it, it connects with themes in religion or aspects of religion that philosophers who are secular often tend to throw away when they throw away religious belief. So things like faith or the kind of desire for salvation or kind of desire for reconciliation that can be profoundly met by religion. I mean, did you find when you were working in philosophy and kind of trying to explore these topics in a secular way, did you feel like that they were neglected or that they were somehow marginalized in philosophy outside of explicitly religious philosophy? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I mentioned that I had a, a kind of tr pretty traditional religious upbringing and I kind of drifted away from it starting in college. And it, it took a while for me to kind of return to it in my teaching and, and in my work. Um, but yeah, I, I both found kind of professionally kind of looking at just kind of looking at work and in, in, in philosophy that these are important areas of human life that were being neglected. But I also found kind of more personally that I had left behind something that was important. And it was a matter of importance for me to kind of reconnect with it and understand it and articulate its value in a way that kind of fit with my current understanding of the world. Well, I don't know how smoothly this will connect with question two, but it might, because the second question I wanted to ask you was whether philosophy has ever helped you out of a practical or emotional difficulty in your life. Yeah, so I, I'm I'm not sure how often uh, philosophy helps me out of uh, practical or, or emotional difficulty, but but certainly there, there are many occasions where I think that philosophy has helped me kind of cope with or work through uh, a, practical or, or, or emotional 
emotional difficulty. Um, one one case that comes to mind concerns work that, that I did with my spouse, Erica Preston Roeder, on grief. We wrote a paper on grief that responds to arguments for the view that recovering relatively quickly from grief over the death of a loved one indicates that there's some kind of deficiency in the relationship or that uh, that the survivor has failed to do well by the person who's died. In the paper, we reconstruct these arguments and respond to them. Um, but a lot of the material for the paper actually emerged out of discussions that Erica and I had when her father died. And so after his death, uh, Erica and her sister, her mom, you know, all responded in, in somewhat different ways. And she was really wrestling. We were kind of wrestling together with what it means to, to honor and to do well by uh, the people that we love after they die. And so, and so this is a case where kind of philosophical kind of reflection on that question kind of led to our writing the paper. And then the kind of further work that we did in the paper, I think it has shaped our understanding of, of yeah, what, what it means to, 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 to do right by loved ones who have died. But also, I think in the, in the, in the course of the discussion, we talked a great deal about what, what, it, what it means to be good partners and good members of relationships to the people we love while they're still living. And we were able to articulate and discuss in ways that we hadn't really before our ideals for our relationships with the people who are close to us. And that's really fascinating. It sounds, in a way, quite a kind of personal, intimate conversation to be having with a partner. How would you like to be grieved and what does it mean to grieve in one way or another. I mean, there it feels like the influence and insight runs in both directions. On the one hand, philosophy might help you think through certain emotional difficulties. Did you also have a sense that the actual direct experience changed or affected how you philosophized about it? I mean, do you think you would have written the same essay or the same kinds of arguments if Erica's father hadn't recently died and you weren't confronted with the concrete experience of processing grief and watching other people process grief in different ways. Yes, so I'm so one kind of obvious thing is you know I'm not sure that we would have written uh, the paper at all had we not kind of had the experience of grief. And so I mean in that case the the, the experience shaped kind of what questions we were asking and what we were interested in. And then I'm I'm sure that that the experience shaped how we proceeded. Although I'm, I'm I mean I'm not sure I can fully or clearly articulate how, but I do think that having an experience and reflecting carefully on your own experience, or reflecting on the experience of of other folks who are close to you, or uh, you know reflecting on historical accounts can serve as a kind of, of touchstone or guide that can help you engage with the phenomenon. And I think it might just lead you in very different directions than you might go if you are just approaching a topic in an abstract or more detached way and sort of cooking up possibilities as well. I mean, did your mother-in-law ever read the paper? I mean, was there that kind of direct constraint that this was a work of philosophy that 
would represent an emotion that someone going through it might then, who, who wasn't a philosopher, might then either read and think was attentive or, or not, or, or you know, is that not something that would happen? Yeah. So, you know, I don't, I don't know if she read the paper. One thing that I found that was very interesting was that a lot of friends who were not philosophers did read the paper, you know, found the paper, you know, on our website or something like this, read the paper and mentioned, mentioned it to us. And, and, and I also found a couple of times early on in giving the paper, you know, giving early versions of the paper as, as, uh, as talks, folks who were not philosophers, sometimes attending and participating in the discussion. And so, yeah, I mean, I think we were kind of working these issues out as philosophers on our own, but did find, discovered that quite, quite a few people in our circle who, who were not philosophers were engaged with it and, 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 and found it useful. Yeah, it's interesting to think about that sort of difference of audiences changing, not just how one writes, but how one thinks. It connects maybe with the, the next question, which is also about concrete experience or experience of a kind, namely perhaps vicarious experience in fiction. So is there a work of art that you love in part for its philosophical depth? Um, yeah, I mean, certainly there are a lot of literary works that I love. I mean, one one that I'm kind of working through right now is James Baldwin's novel, Another Country. So the novel examines the lives of a group of Americans who are connected in various ways to Rufus Scott. And it's this young, talented, promising jazz musician who's committed suicide. And these survivors all kind of have to somehow come to terms with their relation to Rufus in order to understand themselves and understand their, their relations to one another. Um, and I'm finding the novel so just incredibly insightful. I mean, I've been brimming with insights into moral psychology and ethics and, and political philosophy. I mean, some, some of the main things that I find striking, I mean, this wonderful presentation of how a, a kind of sense of shame and a fear of examining the truth uh, is a really important element of you know, the American psychology, of American psyche, and an exploration of the importance of summoning the courage to, to face the truth about ourselves. Also, an examination of how love can facilitate that process of facing the truth and, and how love, therefore, has a kind of redemptive or transformative power. But also at the same time, uh, I think Baldwin has a very sober, a very sober view of of love. I mean, one of the characters states toward the end of the novel that you know only love can save us, and love fails most of the time. And, and then, kind of reading reading the novel, especially alongside reading Baldwin's nonfiction work, you get a kind of exploration of these themes. In, in the nonfiction, an exploration of these themes in the in the, the, the public or political sphere. And in the novel, you kind of see how they play out more in, in the private sphere and in interpersonal relationships. And you can kind of see connections between them. Have you taught the novels? Have you taught it sort of alongside the essays to in, in a in philosophy classes? Or or is it something that you read and experience alongside the philosophical work that you're, you're teaching? Yeah, no, I, I have 
I have taught it. So I taught a, um, I teach a, a class on the philosophy of James Baldwin and the last few weeks of the course we spend on another country and more, more generally, I mean, more and more I'm engaging with literature in my work and it's usually a process of kind of reading literary work kind of on the side as I'm doing my, doing my thing and then, then incorporating it into classes and then it kind of finds my way into things that I'm writing. And yeah, I'm kind of, I'm going through that process with, with Baldwin's novels. Now I was really immersing myself in Giovanni's room in another country for a while, and then incorporated both novels into, uh, into this Baldwin course and had just wonder, really, really wonderful experience there. And yeah, I'm, I'm engaging with like really starting to engage Baldwin's novels in uh, and work that I'm writing now, so stuff that's in progress now. Well, I'm going to swerve us away from philosophy for question four and ask you this. If you weren't a philosopher, what would you do instead? If, uh, if I wasn't a philosopher, um, I would be a medical doctor of some sort. So I went to, did my undergrad at Rice University, and I was in uh, an eight-year program, the, the, the Rice-Baylor med program so it's with my undergraduate in my with my undergraduate institution in partnership uh, with Baylor College of Medicine and basically students in the program kind of took the usual the the standard pre-med classes and provided that you met certain requirements you were guaranteed medical school admission upon graduating college um, and I yeah entered into the program I Really enjoyed my pre-med classes. Was fully expecting to uh, to go to medical school. I had you know, some wonderful summer uh, undergraduate internships at the at the School of Medicine, which was just down the street from Rice. But I think the aims, like one of the aims of the program, was to help ensure that the incoming class of medical students felt kind of freed from the pressure to to just pursue a, a kind of narrow, narrowly focused uh, undergraduate education and to kind of give them the kind of freedom to explore kind of broader liberal education. And that worked uh, in my case, <laughs> maybe it worked, worked too well. And I uh, first briefly explored being an, an English major, but then found that I really enjoyed philosophy classes and eventually decided to, to withdraw from the program and go to uh, go to grad school in philosophy instead. Was that a difficult decision to give up the relative security of a medical career and embark on the risky project of a of becoming a, an academic philosopher? <laughs> the decision was not as difficult as it should have been, not as difficult as it would have been if I had uh, like really appreciated how risky it was. I, I mean, I, I I remember having a conversation with my, I mean, telling my my parents, I mean, various in my in my senior year that I was, you know, not not going to go through with medical school and instead going to philosophy graduate school, and they were, I mean, they were really just it was just shocked silence. I mean, they've they've come around, but um, they uh, and 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 I and I I I think I I appreciate that reaction more now uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, uh, having having had some experience in philosophy and also having kids but yeah i think i, I think i i didn't i was i was excited by the prospect of doing philosophy very excited about uh, some of the people that 
I would be able to work with. And I didn't really appreciate how, how risky uh, it was. Okay. I'm going to ask you one final question. This is question five, another Murdoch-inspired one. It's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher, she wrote. What is he afraid of? So what are you afraid of? Yeah, so I, I, I definitely puzzled over this question a bit. And I, I assume that a lot of the stuff that I'm afraid of isn't really relevant to, to Murdoch's, uh, Murdoch's concerns. Um, but one, one thing that I, I think might be relevant is it definitely over, over the past few years, I've just become worried about the future of the country in, in a way that I had never been before. And there's, I think there's lots of things I could point to that kind of prompt this concern. But I mean, some examples are just the, I mean, during the pandemic, the spread of disinformation and just refusal to adopt basic public health measures. I mean, also the fact that there was an armed attack on the Capitol last year and that many political leaders have denied or excused the attack. And I mean, also the just hysteria surrounding critical race theory and discussing American racism in American schools. And I think all of these things just point to the fact that we're, we're in this period of crisis, but so many of us are so far out of touch with reality. It's just hard to imagine us addressing the crises in a meaningful way. And so these kinds of concerns have really had a profound impact on my, first of all, on my teaching during the past few years. It's definitely given me a sense of urgency to, to try to give students uh, tools to better understand the, the political, like the current political moment, and also to help them imagine new and better possibilities and to help them figure out how to live morally, morally decent lives in times of crisis. And this has really led me to engage much more deeply with African-American philosophy and theology. And so creating the course on the philosophy of James Baldwin, and I'm kind of at the early stages of, of developing a course on uh, philosophy in the Black church. And then all of this kind of thinking and talking about these texts and figures with my students has also started in the last few years to reshape the questions and the figures that I'm engaging with in my research as well. Have you been able in, in the course of doing that work to f conjure up optimism, to find grounds to be optimistic in the face of the kinds of challenges you described? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I have. I mean, one a passage comes to mind from the opening section of James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time. This bit is a, it's written in the form of an open letter to Baldwin's nephew. Um, and he, he closes that section with, uh, this is your home, my friend, do not be driven from it. Great men have done great things here and will again. And we can make America what America must become. It will be hard, James, but you come from sturdy peasant stock, men who picked cotton and dammed rivers and built railroads and in the teeth of the most terrifying odds, achieved an unassailable monumental dignity. Yeah, I, I, I think finding this combination of just really kind of clear-eyed recognition and acknowledgement of how bad things are and how bad things can be, but at the same time, 
holding on to this vision of what we're capable of and kind of focusing on that vision for building something new is definitely one of the things that kind of I draw from this work and and which for, for me like speaks uh, so clearly to to the present. Well, that's a I think a perfect place for us to end the conversation and for me to say thanks, Ryan, for appearing on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me and giving me a chance to uh, to think through these questions. Ryan Preston Rhoda is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Occidental College. He's the author of Faith in Humanity, A Better World, and other essays in moral philosophy. Thanks for listening to Five Questions. Five Questions.